Welcome to the Or Halev podcast with Rabbi James Jacobson Mazels. So last time we started talking about stress and tension. We talked a bit about the effects of stress and tension on our bodies and our minds and hearts. We talked about why we get stressed, the way in which we attempt to assert control over our environment, the way we think that our accomplishments and what we do is fundamentally connected to who we are and our sense of self-worth, the way in which we get caught in an illusion of fear that something terrible will happen if we don't control everything, if we don't fix everything. And we talked, we started to talk about how we undo that pattern, how we can recognize that we can give up control in some ways, how we can recognize that not everything is as important as we thought, and can we just check in if we're okay on a basic level? How we can interrogate our thoughts and have a little bit of humor and questioning about them. Right? Having a little perspective around what we're thinking. We don't have to buy into it so much. So today I wanted to continue that exploration. I want to start with talking about being enough. So much of the ways in which we feel stressed is because we feel we're just not quite enough. We're not good enough, we're not smart enough, we're not pretty enough, we're not successful enough. Whatever it is we think, we're not quite enough. And if we only do or accomplish X, Y, or Z, then finally we'll be enough. But what we start to see as we practice is a few things. The first thing we see is that there will never be enough. There will never be enough, right? Things are always passing, and a great way to check this out is to recall your previous thoughts of enough, whatever they were. <laughs> if I only X, then I'll be okay, whatever that was, like some job you wanted, some relationship you wanted, some other thing you wanted, some vacation you wanted, I don't know what it is, you all had it, I've had it, right? There was something you felt like, oh, if I just do this, if I just get this, I'll be okay in some way. And you'll notice the number what the thing was that you got, it did not make your life okay. Right? might have been nice, might have been wonderful, might have loved it. You might love the job you have. You might have a great relationship. That's all great, right? <laughs> but none of it made your life okay. There's a great famous study of um, people who win the lottery. And um, the study shows that the lottery has no long-term impact on your happiness, right? <laughs> Winning the lottery has no long-term impact on your happiness. It has a short-term impact. I don't remember exactly what it was, maybe a year, maybe six months, maybe two years, I don't know. But after that, you just go back to the way you were before, right? No difference. Which is amazing because the lottery, you know, let's say you win $50 million or something, right? That could change your life in a lot of ways, right? It could provide you with a lot of opportunities, allow you to do all the things you ever wanted to do, right? But nothing you can get can ever make it enough, right? There's a kind of, all of us have to some extent, I would say, in my experience, there's a kind of hole we have, and we want to fill that hole. And some of us do that quite literally. Many of us do it quite literally. For instance, eating, right? <laughs> like we eat and we feel like it's going to fill that hole. It's going to satiate us. It's going to make us feel okay, full in some ways. And of course, it never does it, right? Nothing ever fills that hole. And maybe it's a hole of love as well. And it's like, well, if our partner would just love us just enough and in just the right way, <laughs> or our kids, or our parents, or our work, or whatever. And we may have people around us who love us very much, right? 
But nobody's ever going to love us in just the right way that's going to fill that hole. Nobody's ever going to fill that hole. Because things are always changing. Nothing's stable. No matter what you get, no matter what you achieve, it never does it, right? It never, it never does it. That hole is always still there, and we're always still striving after the next thing. There's a momentary blip of happiness, and it passes away. And on the other side, the other side is to recognize that actually, the truth is that we are already enough. We're actually already enough right now. We're already full right now. There's actually nothing to do. There's nothing to get. And that's part of why the getting and the doing don't do anything for us. Because it's all always already there. And our task is just to open to it. Right? We say every morning, you know, all my favorite prayers, My God, the soul you have given me is pure. We are pure. We are full. Right? That's just the nature of who we are. It can be helpful sometimes to recognize that it just in some simple ways, right? For instance, to just ask yourself at any moment when you're feeling that not-fullness, that stress, that tension, am I okay right now? Are you safe? Are you physically safe? Are you sustained? Like, do you have enough sustenance? Do you have enough to eat? Are you kind of at the right temperature, more or less, right? Like you're not going to freeze to death, right? You're not going to have heat stroke. The vast majority of moments in our life, the answers to those questions are yes, right? It's helpful to check in when we're feeling that not okay, not okay, to be like, oh, actually, actually, I'm fundamentally okay. And then we might even check in and, you know, um, oh God, now I'm forgetting his name. Rick Hansen says, right? He says, you know, most of us right now, certainly in Western society, live better than the royalty of old, right? We probably have better, right? We probably have actually have like better physical lives than the medieval kings of England, right? <laughs> Maybe they had bigger houses than us, but right? But in terms of like comfort, warmth, access to fresh food, I mean like all kinds of things, right? We live in a way that people almost never lived in human history. And we pretty much have that more or less no matter what. That is, for most of us, most of the time it's unlikely we end up homeless. Now that doesn't happen in our society, right? But for most of us here, that's unlikely, right? And can we just notice that for a moment, right? Notice what's actually all right in our life. There's all these things we want to achieve, all these things we want to do, all these things we want to get. Totally fine. And notice what you also already have. Now maybe not physically, the achievements you've already done, the things you've accomplished, the people you've connected to, the love that is already present in your life. We do this practice at the beginning now. For me, it's been an amazing practice. I just started doing it this year. You know, really shortly before I introduced you guys to it. Um, and... Um, it's like just noticing I'm already loved. In like myriads of ways I'm already loved. And in fact, I could not have survived until today had I not been loved by actually countless people, often in completely anonymous ways. Right? Like there's direct extensions of love, but they're like the people who put up the traffic lights <laughs> so we don't run into each other. Right? It's like amazing. Somebody did that and somebody thought of it, right? all over this country, all over the world, 
just to keep me and other people safe. That's the only reason they did it, right? They just did it to keep us safe. And it works pretty well most of the time, right? It's like amazing. It's like I'm totally cared for all the time in these amazing ways. I take a bus from where I lived here to Jerusalem, right? I didn't set up the bus, right? I didn't create Egged. I didn't, like the whole thing, right? I didn't do any of that. It just appeared for me there. And I get to make use of it pretty amazingly, right? It's like the world actually provides this like amazing multitude of things for me. And no, they don't even notice it. Right? The world is like constantly, constantly supporting me. And usually, it's a problem I talked about before, we have this negativity, negativity bias, right? We normally notice what's wrong. It makes evolutionary sense, right? But it doesn't make much sense for us now. And so we notice usually all the ways the world is messing us up, right? <laughs> but we don't notice the ways the world is supporting us constantly, every day, in sort of infinitesimal small ways, right? All the time. It's like there's this building here, which we get to meet in to do this work. How awesome, right? I didn't build it. Did you build it? No, right? It's just here, just waiting for us, just ready for us. And these people who own the building, we said, sure, you can use this. Go for it, right? How nice, right? Just luck, just the luck of us showing up here and being handed all these things. And of course, that happens from the very moment of our birth, right? Even before our birth, actually, right? We get brought into somebody's womb, right? <laughs> and we get taken care of there. We get come out. We get given food and clothing and care. Not always perfectly, and things go wrong, right? It's not about it being a totally rosy picture. It's just seeing all these small ways that we are constantly supported. Stephen Levine has a great book called A Year to Live. And it's a book which says, what if you had a year to live? How would you live, right? And it's a great question to ask ourselves, because usually when we ask that question, it's not doing the stuff that is like the making ourselves enough, right? Usually that stuff kind of falls away when we think, well, what would I do if I had a year to live, right? Wouldn't be sort of the next achievement, the next thing on the checkoff list. And so often relating to our stress and our tension is just about stopping and saying that we are enough right now, that we have enough right now. And then... Once we notice that we're sort of fundamentally enough, it's a great question to ask also when you've got some task. It's like, what's the minimum? It's not that you want to stay at the minimum. We want to achieve, we want to strive, that's all great. But it's good to ask yourself, what is the minimum here? What's the minimum I have to do for it to be okay? Right? And then anything above the minimum is just like extra. Right? It's just like a bonus. Right? So it's just like, this is the minimum. Oh, okay, that's the minimum. Can I let go of any stress over the minimum? And then we see all these like totally amazing things that are above just our okayness. It's like, not only do I have enough food and shelter and all those other things, but I get to exercise as well. How great. I get to ride my bike in the fields around my house. How lovely is that? And I get love and I get to read interesting books and I have amazing kids and there's lovely beer and ice cream and chocolate, right? And there are movies, right? And there are all these like amazing things that are just pure bonuses that I get in my life. Totally above being alright, totally above taking care of my basic needs. And often I'm not that grateful for them, right? I just sort of take them for granted, right? But it's actually this amazing bounty that I get to experience in my life. I think I mentioned this, but it still strikes me as amazing every time. I'll mention it again, in case I didn't. I read this book about 
Um, this North Korean who was born in a North Korean, uh, basically concentration camp, like these insane political prison camps. He's one of the few people that was born in one of these. So his parents were basically arrested and they were, didn't know they were allowed to have a relationship. Like most people are not allowed to have a relationship. They were given as a reward for, you know, I don't know, informing other prisoners, whatever, whatever they did out of a relationship. They had a child in this camp. Completely dystopian, like the most horrific, you, you actually cannot imagine, cannot imagine. It's like an inhuman place, right, to grow up. And he actually escaped, right? So the only person they know of who was born in one of those camps who has managed to escape. And, he, you know, he didn't even understand the world. I mean, it was like, you know, uh, he might have been living in another century, right? Had no understanding of the world at all. So he escapes across Korea, North Korea, into China, gets into China. And... When he gets to China, doesn't speak the language, doesn't know anybody, right? But he figures out within the first day or two that he can beg and that he can get enough food to survive by begging, right? Which was not true in this camp. It was not always clear that you would have enough food to survive, right? People die of starvation. Get enough food to survive. And he says he felt no anxiety in China, right? He did not speak the language, he had nowhere to live, he had no idea what was going to happen, he didn't know if he was going to be captured. But just the fact that he knew already from the first few days that he could get enough food to eat every day. No anxiety. Right? Just pretty amazing. It's like, what do I have anxiety about, right? <laughs> right? And it's not about, you know, like beating ourselves up about it, it's just noticing, it's like, oh, can we just notice how basically okay we are, right? And luckily we have lives which are far beyond okay, so that's what we're comparing it to, but it's helpful to just, ooh, step back and notice and notice what's actually fundamentally okay here. What are really my basic needs? What's really enough? It's basically letting ourselves know that we're fundamentally safe in this moment and stress and tension about feeling fundamentally unsafe in some way. Some way I'm not okay, and I kind of remind myself of my basic okayness. Second strategy I want to talk about is about seeing from a broader perspective. Pizetzer talks says it literally says it's seeing from God's eyes eye view, right? So Menachem Eckstein, who is a 20th century Hasidic teacher, has a wonderful book called Tanae uh, Chasidut: The Conditions for for Hasidism, for piousness, right? It's translated called Visions of a Compassionate World find in English, um, has this wonderful meditation he teaches where he says, you start in your experience and you slowly expand out. It's like you see your house, your community, your nation, the world, the galaxy, you know, like you just expand out and out and out and out and out to get a broader, 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 broader perspective. And when you get to that broader perspective, you realize it's not such a big deal, Right? Whatever it was you're upset about, whatever it was you're stressed about, it's really not such a big deal. In the grand scheme of the universe, right, it's more or less irrelevant. And, you know, in some ways that can kind of feel unpleasant, but in some ways it can feel incredibly liberating. It's like whatever I'm worried about, whatever I'm sort of tight about right now, I move out, I move out, and I recognize whatever, it's one tiny piece of one tiny life in this huge universe, and whether it happens or now, the universe will be okay, and I'll be okay, and everybody else is gonna be okay, right? 
So maybe I can let go a little bit. Maybe I can hold it a little less tightly. Right? A little less stress. It says in Tehillim, right, the famous line, Reshit Chochmah Hashem. The beginning of wisdom is awe, literally of God, is awe of God. And that's that place of awe. Awe is that place of, it's like, wow, this is so expansive, this is so big. Don't get caught up in the little stuff, right? And we have those moments sometimes, right? It's like, for me, it's, it's mountaintop moments, right? You're on the top of the mountain, it's like, it's so big. How can your heart not open? Right? How can your heart not open the top of the mountain? And it opens because we see the majesty. And part of our practice, or the attempt of our practice is, can we see the majesty in the everyday moments? And when we see the majesty, there's no room for the worry and the stress and the tension. Because in the majesty, it's so much bigger than that, right? It's so much bigger. So much bigger. There's a great practice you can do to sort of feel that majesty and expansiveness. Sort of, I think I've mentioned it sometimes here. As you breathe, you're with the breath, and then as you breathe, you imagine that as you breathe in, you're breathing in all the air in the world. It's like completely filling your body. And as you breathe out, your breath is filling the entire world. It's like doing mouth-to-mouth resuscitation with God, right? You're just like exchanging breaths. You're breathing in, you're breathing out, you're breathing in, you're breathing out, and you just notice this expansiveness. It's like it's so much broader. It's so much wider than you are. There's nothing to get caught in. There's nothing to get stuck in. There's nothing to get scared about. It says in Isaiah... It says, then you'll see, and you will brighten, right? And you will have fear, although I would say here, you will have awe, right? It's that movement between fear and awe. And your heart will widen. And we've all done that, right? We've done that. Like you've seen something, you've brightened, there's been that like trembling of awe and your heart is widened. It's like at a birth, right? I don't know, but that's for me, especially the first birth, right? I was at our first kid. It was like, first of all, it was like you see and it's amazing and it's terrifying. And what the heck is this thing? <laughs> it's like completely crazy. It's like totally crazy, right? Totally crazy, right? I feel like really feeling it was like a science fiction episode or something, right? Like completely crazy and totally extraordinary. And how could your heart not widen at that moment? How could you not love this being in front of him? There's another, it's not like there's another option. It's like you choose it or have to do something about it. Just like, there it is. How else could you respond? And we get those gifts, of course, of those extraordinary moments, right? We just get the gifts. We see it. We brighten. The heart trembles and the heart expands. And our practice, this practice of opening and opening and widening and widening and widening and widening is asking ourselves, even when it isn't given to us as a gift, as grace, can we expand the heart? Can we see the moment of trembling just in, you know, my hand, in the mystery and awesomeness of this hand? I can do these extraordinary things, right? Or the floor, or the air, right? Or the flower. I mean, any of you who've been on retreat, especially if you've been on a longer retreat, you've seen that. It's like you're on retreat and like you take a walk, you're doing walking meditation, 
pick up your eyes for a second, you see a flower, all of a sudden it's like, whoa, right? <laughs> never seen a flower like that before, never seen a leaf like that before, never seen a piece of grass like that before. It's a com- completely different experience. And, you know, the grass didn't change, right? You just got a little bit wider. Your expansion of the land is a little, it's harder, of course, in our daily lives, because in our daily lives, in retreat, we're constantly doing these things to open ourselves up, to open ourselves up, right? And in daily life, unfortunately, <laughs> Often things are constantly happening, which are kind of closing us down, closing us down, closing us down. So it's not pretending that it's as easy as on retreat. But it's, it's noticing that and noticing like, oh, there's still a possibility for me to open here. There's a possibility for me to appreciate. There's a possibility to see something different. And sometimes it's noticing when we're giving those moments of grace to really take the opportunity rather than to turn away. It's like something opens our heart and instead of being like, oh, I've got to get somewhere, it's like, oh... Can I take the time to really have my heart open there? And that may be, you know, maybe just like you're walking down the street and all of a sudden you see a little kid playing and it's like, oh, and your heart's touched. It can be that simple. It can be watching a movie, right? And something just like breaks you open at the end. It can be anything, right? But when it happens, the Pizetzner says, don't let even a sigh escape your notice. It's like when it happens, stop for a moment. Utilize that precious opportunity to let the heart open. Don't let it just pass you by. You hear music which moves you for a second. So stop. Listen to it. The Baal Shem Tov um, is a similar teaching. He says, <laughs> he's talking about Isaac, right? It says in Breshit, V'yashav Yitzchak v'yachpor be'er. Right? Yitzchak dug a well. And it says he dug the same wells that his father, Avraham, had dug. Right? Dug the same wells. He says, what is this aspect of digging wells? So he says it's, Yitzchak shehu apachad, right? So as we know from Kabbalah, Yitzchak is connected to Yira, to awe, to fear, to pachad. But it says there, he, he did, dug one well and there was no water, and he dug another well. And the Bashan says, what is the shift here? The shift is, the first time he dug, he only encountered Yira chitzonit, external awe. Things which make us feel kind of shaky, but we can't open up to all. We're just trapped in fear, we're trapped in anxiety. But the second time he came to Yirapimit, internal law. And therefore, Vinikra Makom Rikhovot. Right? He closed it, Rikhovot. Because God widened us. It widened us, right? When we were able to touch that inner trembling of awe, there's this place of spaciousness. Right? The internality of fear of awe is called expansiveness, it's called Rikhovot. And get it. Right, it's a classic end to a Hasidic drash. They say, Behavet. Right, and you're supposed to get it, take it in. We can just open to that place of shakiness, open to that place of wonder, and all of a sudden, oh, there's just a breath of fresh air. Right, there's something so much wider that we can connect to. We don't have to be trapped in that place of small mind. It's the movement from, Hasidim call it, Mochin de Katnut, Le Mochin de Gadlut. Small mind to big mind. Right? You're trapped in small mind all the time. And we're training here to move into big mind. The third strategy, <clears throat> this is the last strategy for today, we'll talk about more next time, is feeling loved. So much of that stress and tension is about a not enoughness, and so much of that not enoughness is actually about feeling, I'm not going to be okay, I'm not going to be loved, held, related to if. X or Y, the other doesn't happen. That's not always clear to us, but I encourage you to actually investigate and explore it. It's like, what's actually at the bottom of that hole for me? That hole of not enoughness and not all rightness. 
And so often it's that feeling of, we won't be loved. We won't be loved. And that being loved or not loved, and you can check out the experience yourself, is fundamentally connected to us to, I'll be safe or I won't be safe. Right? You can feel it. Like when you really feel loved, when you really feel loved, what could possibly make you feel unsafe? It's almost hard for me at least to really feel like, how could I feel unsafe when I really felt loved? And not that of course, you know, I could, I don't know, a bear could appear. I'm sure fear would still arise, right? <laughs> if a bear showed up. But most of my experience, it feels like oh, if I just felt totally loved, in the place, times when I do feel totally loved, of course I feel totally safe. Because what could possibly be threatening, right? It's like I'm loved, I'm totally secure, I'm totally present. And the times when I don't feel loved, then everything feels unsafe, right? Everything feels unsafe. And so love is the way into feeling this basic sense of all rightness, of oneness, of presence, of awe, of unity. It's why, right, what's the bracha we say just before the Shema, which is our prayer of oneness, of presence, of unity, what's the bracha? It's always a bracha of love. Always. In the morning and the evening, slightly different versions, we say, Right? And it's not a blessing of us loving, right? It's a blessing of saying, of us trying to fully take in that we are fundamentally loved. With a great love you have loved us. With a great and, and surpassing compassion have you had compassion for us, right? That's just it. You just love us. We are just loved. We are just held in compassion. Always, every moment, no limits, right? In the evening we say, Avat olam aftan, right? An eternal love, right? It's eternal. There's no conditions, there's no breaks. It doesn't depend on doing X or Y. It doesn't like, we don't fall out of it. Our, our, motion, our movement into oneness and awareness is the movement into seeing that we are loved. It's like, oh, we're supposed to stop there and be like, I am fundamentally loved. I am fundamentally loved at every moment of my life at every moment of my experience. And if we want to notice that, we actually have to make it a daily practice of noticing love, of noticing ourselves being loved. Prayer is a great way to do it. Our meditation practice is a great way to do it. If we notice for a moment that we feel love, so really be with that, enrich it, treasure it, not hold on to it, not attach to it, just really open to it. It's like, what a blessing that I get to feel loved. And if we do that, we start to build this capacity and trust in our own belovedness, right? In the fact that we are actually the beloved and we are loved all the time, every moment. It's hard for us to see, it's hard for us to believe, but we can shift our awareness and belief in the love. It doesn't happen overnight, but we can feel the fundamental difference in a relationship to ourselves and others and the world. So that's where we're going to stop for today. And as usual, we're going to take some time for uh, questions, thoughts, uh, anything people would like to offer or ask about. Um, <clears throat> with both kind of the side of uh, the gratitude and like recognizing all the, like, you know, even like the small things, like amazing wonderment of yeah. you know, the things that we have in our life that are so wonderful. And the side of, you know, um, Hashem, you know, is kind of like eternal love. 
how can you internalize that without almost feeling like such an awe of like wow like guilt of like what did I do to deserve such wonderfulness and such love like mm. and then actually not internalize that into like a way yeah. of feeling you know guilty about it or deserving so the guilt story right is um, is about you is about some story about being undeserving mm-hmm. right that's right say so two I was going to say a few things about it. One is that that story of being undeserving is a story which says, I only deserve to be loved if, right? There's a conditional sense of love to it. And so actually just practicing of sending ourselves and acknowledging our own belovedness, we'll start to chip away at that. When we do it, the guilt story may arise. Like, no, 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 I don't deserve this, I don't deserve this. And we can just be quite kind of firm in continuing to send ourselves love. It's like, well, yes, you do. And I'm just going to keep sending you love. I'm going to keep sending you love. And I'm going to continue to love. And the love itself can start to chip away at the story of not being deserving of the conditionalness of the love. That's one piece. A second piece is that when we notice that story arise, we can drop into the pain of that story. Right? It's very painful, that story, like I don't deserve it, or I'm guilty, or I didn't do enough for it. And try to open fully to that pain with love. Because the reason we're responding that way is because in some way, it feels to us unsafe to buy into the unconditional love. So if I don't keep the story going of being undeserving, then I won't be safe. Probably because if I don't keep the story going, it won't make me do X, Y, Z, and Q, that will make me safe, right? It's like this voice in our head which is saying, no, 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 you're not deserving, you don't deserve it, right? And it's usually tied into some experiences in our childhood, right? Which were like, oh, we're only going to get this if we deserved it. And we bought into those patterns that our parents set down in some way. Not necessarily consciously, right? But they had some pattern of like, you only get love or concern or respect or ice cream, whatever, (laughs) when you do whatever it is that you now deserve, right? And so we can touch into that fundamental pain and into the strategy of the ego to maintain that pain because the pain makes it feel safe. It's just trying to maintain its safety. And when we touch that with compassion, just the touching with compassion is letting the ego know it doesn't need that story to stay safe. Right? We're going to hold you in love and you don't need the story to stay safe because the love is just going to make you safe. And you can even directly challenge the ego with that. You can be say like, you know, I can be safe just as I am. Or, I don't need to do anything to deserve to be loved. Love is not dependent. It's not contingent on anything. Right? I just fundamentally deserve to be loved. Fundamentally deserve to be loved. And one great way to working on that is to do a practice like the one we do at the beginning or other love practices to just Actually send yourself love. And you'll notice the resistance to it. The resistance to sending yourself love. If that story is active. And you'll just keep sending yourself love. Keep sending it. Keep sending it. And that water of love will sort of wear away the stone of that resistance. There'll be more and more space for that. Basically the lovingness and the basic uprightness to arise. And then I'd encourage you to keep an eye out when you're sitting. There may be moments when we touch... Oh, an awareness of fundamental all-rightness. Fundamental lovingness that isn't conditioned on anything. We notice that. Often when we're in more intensive practice on retreat, but even daily life, we notice, 
I'm just fundamentally okay right now. And you want to kind of put that in the pocket and recognize next time that voice comes up, I don't need to believe you. I know that I've touched this moment where I felt fundamentally okay. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, may Havain. When you gave the list of things to check in to make sure you're feeling that you're fundamentally okay, right? Yeah. You said safety, yeah. sustenance, and temperature. I'm just wondering, is the list longer than that, or is that the list? <laughs> yeah, I would say, what are the basic things? I would say, really, the list is twofold, right? Physical safety, and you can include in that enough food and shelter and stuff, and some sense of relationship, right? It's very hard for us human beings if we're totally alone. Now, if we're clear and apparent enough about it, we can be fine. So you can go, if you're an experienced meditator, and sit by yourself for years in a mountain and feel plenty of love, right? But for, for most of us on our normal level, we need physical safety and we need some human connection, right? If you don't have those two things, then we're in big trouble. But yeah, that's, that's basically it, right? Physically safe, you have some human connection. You're okay? Right? Okay, the third question, you, should, you mentioned three different things that you can do. Yeah. They were spread out through your yeah. heart. Can you just, in a few words, Yes, sure, totally. Summer? And they're not the only three. I'm going to go into other ones next time. But just say, the one we ended with was feeling loved, right? So cultivating and noticing that feeling of love. Um, the second one was the broader perspective, the place of awe. It's like, it's bigger, it's wider, don't get caught in the little stuff. And the first one was noticing actually your basic okayness, the underlying fullness. Like, actually it is enough. I'm enough right now. Okay? <sighs> Wonderful sitting together as always. Um, can somebody be in charge of putting the room back together? Should just go into like a little hat again? It's a small room, it should be fairly easy. Wonderful, thanks. Would somebody be willing to connect donations? It's none of our normal people are here. Anybody who might just be here next week, you can bring it next week. Very nice. Great, wonderful, thank you very much. <laughs> All right, you're on. You've been listening to the Or Halev podcast with Rabbi James Jacobson Mazels. For more information about Or Halev and how to stay up to date with our podcasts, visit the website at orhalev.org.